The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Exodus 25. Uh, Exodus 25 is where we will be uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to actually be all throughout the rest of Exodus and and try to finish up the tabernacle today. Uh, I'm going to close out the service today in a unique way. Um, uh, We we are at a point... um, nationally, um, but go in closer in our community uh, and go even closer into this church family, we're at a, we're at a time where we need to pray together. And uh, I'm going to close out the service today by calling us to prayer, uh, particularly if, if you come in real close to the church family, uh, former pastor Frank Kills, many of you have heard by now, uh, passed away uh, over the weekend uh, yesterday. And uh, so I want to I lead us as we close the service today to pray for Kathy and for Robbie and Josh and the family and just uh, that God would just comfort them and, and that we would just have an opportunity to thank God for faithfulness uh, displayed in, in, uh, in men like Frank who have preached the gospel. Uh, come out just a little further and we look at our community and with the news this week of there being a... Um, a serial killer uh, living in our community and, and uh, just all the crime that seems to be rampant around us. I think it's, it, it warrants for us, the church, to come together and just call out to God and, uh, and ask him uh, to bring that day to come where he would rid the world of this evil, when all of the darkness that's around us would be removed. But while he tarries, that we would be faithful to, uh, to preach the gospel that we would realize that the greatest evil is not in someone else out there. The greatest evil that we are aware of resides within us. My heart is the darkest heart I know. And I I pray that we would be aware of that deeply and that we would pray. But also then we go out a little further and we look at our country, and uh, this Tuesday being the election, that we would pray that God would would accomplish his perfect will, that we would not put our hope and our confidence in, in someone who will fill an office but instead that we would realize that uh, there is a God who's on his throne. He's sovereign. And he is, he is turning the hearts of kings and leaders like water in his hand. And so that we would turn out and we would, we would cry to him today. So that's how we'll close the service. Uh, but before we head to that, uh, I just want to, uh, to spend a little bit of time looking at the, the final fixtures of the tabernacle. Uh, I'm going to read this passage, the one I started with three weeks ago or two weeks ago. Um, in uh, verses 1 through 8 of of verse 25. But before I do, let me just remind you that uh, as we look at these fixtures in the tabernacle, all the things that are there, the the altar and the golden lampstand and all these things, there are lots of wrong ways that we can interpret those. I told you this last week, and I just want to remind you of it. We could get lost in the weeds looking at all the different details of uh, what these are made of and how they are made. And, and we could get lost in the weeds of saying, well, I think that symbolizes that and that represents that. And before we know it, we've left off of what God intended for it to mean. And we have sort of written ourselves into it or written our own thoughts into the scriptures. And we don't want to do that. Uh, we, we want to be reminded that the Bible, the whole Bible is written to us as God's revelation of himself to us. But we also want to be reminded that Exodus 
just like every other book in the Bible, was written to a particular audience at a particular point in history. And so there are some things in the Bible that we are not to take as prescription for us and just blanket apply those. God's not calling us to build another tabernacle. We're not starting that as a ministry in, in 2017. That's not a budget line item. Um, tabernacle, you know, we're not doing that because God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us instead to see, I believe, how these, these um, the, the elements that are used in the tabernacle, the materials that are used, if they're used other places in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, to, to symbolize, and that's sort of, that is a common symbolism all the way through, then we can look at that and say God is, God is not a God who, who uh, is, is unplain, but we can say this is, I think, what God's meaning. But also he wants us to see how the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. Uh, we don't value the New Testament over the Old Testament. What we do is we say the New Testament is what allows us, helps us to understand the Old Testament. God's been saying the same thing, telling the same story, the one story of redemption from the beginning. And he will always tell that story. It is the story that, that we are in the middle of. The story is not the one where we are the stars. We are not the, the featured people in this story that God exists to us and our character. Instead, we are players in this story at the mercy and grace of God. So I want to just cast that as this caveat for us as we start to, to remind ourselves of where we are. Last week, we looked at the Ark of the Covenant we looked at the table for the bread of the presence, and we looked at the golden lampstand. Today, I want to look at four other elements, Lord willing, uh, if we have time uh, in the tabernacle, and then show you how Christ fulfills those. So, if you will, Exodus 25, follow along as I read in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you uh, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So, for sake of time, let me just dive right in. These last few fixtures in the tabernacle. First off, the bronze altar. The bronze altar is uh, roughly would have been about seven feet by seven feet by four feet high, it would have been in the courtyard so that it would have been the very first thing that a, an Israelite would have seen when he came into the courtyard of the tabernacle. Remember, the Israelites were not allowed to go into the tabernacle itself, but the tabernacle was surrounded by this courtyard. And they could go into the, the courtyard or see into the courtyard, and it would have been the most beautiful thing that they would have seen because it's the first thing there. And it's beautiful to them for more reasons than the fact that it's first, and we'll look at those. In Psalm 84, verses 2 and verse 10, we, we sing these sometimes, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. 
My, my heart and flesh sing for the joy to the living, sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So all throughout Israel's history there, we see them celebrating, going into the courtyards. I'd rather be, in the, I'd rather be a doorkeeper there than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Oh, Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. We sing those without any reference to the, the tabernacle or coming into that, that court yard area because we are removed from it but that's what they were talking about oh how great it was to walk into the courtyard and this is the main reason why because the first thing they would have seen was this great bronze altar and the reason it was it would bring them such joy is because it was there at that altar where their sins could be forgiven they lived with their sins and they knew no forgiveness of their sins unless something died and it happened only there. No more graphic picture could have been seen or, or provided by God of how serious God takes sin. God hates sin and God will judge sin. This is no easy bake altar, if you will. This is this is a, a serious piece of furniture in the courtyard of the tabernacle where God judges sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. There would be no more graphic picture of how serious God takes sin, but there also would be no more serious or graphic picture of the substitution that God provided at that altar. The, the place where um, the, the, the worshiper, the Israelite, would come and he would bring this animal and he would come to the, the gate of the courtyard and he himself would have his hands on the animal and he himself would slay the animal. And at that point is where the priest would take over. Before he could enter in, he would take this animal and the animal must give its life for his place. And he's, he's touching this animal symbolically as this animal is representing me and it is dying in my place. And then the priest would take over. We personally kill this at the gate. But this would bring them great joy to see this bronze altar. The second fixture in the tabernacle that I want you to see in the text, and I don't have time to read all of these passages. I'm doing this for the sake of time, so go back and look at these. But less a piece of furniture, but still a fixture, would be the priests. In chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, you can read about those. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, the, the people met with God at the tabernacle, but not on their own. They weren't permitted to, to, to come into the presence of God. The tabernacle was where they brought thank offerings. They made atonement for their sin, and they, they entered into the presence of the living God, but they could not do that themselves. They had to do all those things by coming through men who had special callings on their life who were called priests. They were the sons of Aaron, the high priest himself. There were lots of priests, the sons of Aaron, but there was a high priest who was distinguished from all of the others. He wore special clothing to, to make himself stand out. He didn't do this at his own discretion. We have a lot of uh, TV preachers today that, uh, that pride themselves on standing out and, 
having all these things, but they're doing it at their own discretion. But here, God says, make for the high priest special garments. You read that in verse 2. These special clothes that the high priest would have worn consisted of this breast piece that was adorned with these gemstones. Lots of gemstones on the front, and, and uh, particularly there were two up on the shoulders. This, um, this, it, this breast piece um, was attached to the ephod. The ephod was this long sleeveless vest, sort of like an apron. And I so wish Greg would, was here because I have found biblical proof that sweater vests are, are the garment for pastors right here. It's this sort of sleeveless vest that he, that he wears. Um, underneath all that, he would wear a robe a tunic and linen underclothes. Uh, a turban would go on his head. There in verse 2, make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Philip Graham Ryken said, there was something glorious about the high priest's calling. And this was displayed by the special grandeur of his clothes. If you looked at the high priest's clothing, and if you've got an ESV study Bible or maybe perhaps some other study Bible, they have some really good graphics in there that kind of show some of these things. Uh, But the the same colors that were used in the tabernacle were also incorporated in this special clothing for the high priest. Uh, There would be gold that was in in the the, the high priest's clothing, and it it would just play off of all the furnishings that were there in the holy place. The white linen that he was wearing would, would, mat, would have matched the curtains. The blue, the purple, the scarlet would have, would have really just coordinated well with all of the embroidery that was going on in the inner place. And so when you saw this, this, um, this uh, high priest in all of his garments, one commentator said it was almost as if the high priest embodied the tabernacle. You would have, you would have known just by seeing him that he went there, that he belonged there. Um, you ever went somewhere and felt like you were underdressed, like you were just out of place the whole night? I mean, that's just it's an awkward feeling. That's not happening with the high priest. You would have, you would have known he belongs here. Um, well, since holiness, glory, and beauty are all essential attributes of God, it, it spoke to the fact that here, here the, the, pre, the high priest is dressed this way, displaying this holiness. He's set apart. It, look at his glorious outfit. He's, he's, his clothing is beautiful. It would have spoken to the fact that the only way to approach this holy and glorious and beautiful God would have been by coming through someone who was also holy and glorious and beautiful. And this is why the priest displayed, was displayed this way. On the shoulders of the ephod that the high priest wore were, were two gemstones. And on those two gemstones um, were, were 12 names. They were the 12 sons of Jacob who later became Israel. These were the 12 tribes of Israel. They, um, there were six on one and six on the other. Uh, and even though the, all of the tribes, all of the Israelites couldn't go into the presence of God, when the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go in to the most holy place wearing, carrying these 12 tribes on his shoulders. Even though they couldn't go in personally, he was representing them, taking them all in in a way to represent them before this God. Um, so that is the priesthood and kind of what they, they did. And I'm going to come back to all these at the end and show you how Jesus fulfills these. 
But then we also have the altar of incense uh, in the tabernacle. And you can read about this in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 34 through 38. Uh, The altar of incense was roughly 18 inches by 18 inches, and it was about three feet tall. It was located in the holy place. And if you you remember my description of the holy place, uh, you would go into the holy place, and two-thirds made up the, the holy place, and then the last third made up the most holy, or the holy of holies. And there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And uh, this altar of incense, I guess I should turn it around because you're looking at it from from the opposite way that I am. If you came into, as as a priest, you came into the most holy place, right up against that veil before going into the most holy place would have been this altar of incense. So in, in other words, what's, what's being pictured here is this would be the closest the priest would get to the presence of God ever, except for the high priest on the one day of the year when he would go past the veil into the most holy place. So this is the place, the altar of incense would have been the place where it was, you were there, you were at the doorway into the throne room of God. And the priests here, they, they burned incense every day, morning and evening. Uh, in, uh, at the same time, they would, they would have the, the lights of the lamp burning. They burning incense morning and evening. It was a special incense. It was, used, it was to be used nowhere else. And, uh, and Nadab and Abihu found this out when they were struck dead for burning strange fire, Leviticus 10 tells us, uh, on the altar. What they were doing is, is that they brought in an incense that was not the one, that, the, the recipe that was supposed to be used, and, and God struck them dead. Um, the, the incense had a practical purpose. Uh, if you think about um, all the animals that were being, um, being slaughtered there, and the, part of the priest's job was to go into this tabernacle, and all the while he's sprinkling blood in various parts of the tabernacle. And so you can imagine over, after a while that that's, that's a pretty putrid smell in there. And so the incense had this practical purpose to cover that putrid odor of the animal blood, but it also has a spiritual purpose. The altar of incense was to represent prayer. And we know this. I told you we want to look and see if the Bible, the Old Testament, uses symbolism for these things. Well, Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation, if you go to the end, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so this incense, the spiritual reality here is it's representing this prayer. So when the, the priests would come to the closest they would come to the, 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 the presence of God, it's there that they are offering up prayers. We see this, Zechariah later in the New Testament, his, he comes out and he says, your prayers have been heard. Uh, the incense here is to represent and to picture for us prayer. And the last one I'll give you, and then I'll give you just some how Christ fulfills these, is the bronze basin. Uh, the, the priests were required, you can read about it in, in chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, um, the priests were required to wash their hands and their feet uh, before 
and after every sacrifice, uh, before going in and after coming out, really before any of their priestly duties and after any of their priestly duties, they were to wash. And, uh, and this, again, had a practical purpose. It was just a good practice. You know, I don't know, um, I, I kind of did some research on this. Um, you know, sometimes people think that uh, clean, cleanliness is next to godliness is, is a Bible verse. Well, it's not a Bible verse. But uh, some people say that maybe Francis Bacon or John Wesley himself is the first one who said that. But there, there's a practical purpose to this, that, uh, that it's, it's a good practice to wash, to be clean. There's some sanitary reasons here. But there's a spiritual purpose as well for their washing over and over and over again. And it reminds them that it is a necessary requirement for them to be clean before a holy God. It would be a constant reminder of the dirt that they picked up when they were walking among the camp and in the world. Their need to be cleansed from all that they, 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 they pick up in contact with this world. As often as they carried out their duties, they needed to be reminded of their need to be clean. So they were constantly in this bronze basin, washing their hands, washing their feet, as a reminder that they served a pure and a holy God. So those are the, the last of the four fixtures. Well, what are they there for? What's the conclusion in all this? Well, I told you last week that all of the fixtures of the tabernacle give us pictures of distinct aspects of redemption. Hebrews 8.5 tells us that, that they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So these things that we see in the tabernacle here in Exodus are pointing to realities that, that God would carry out, particularly in Jesus. For instance, our bronze altar is Jesus himself. Um, Jesus became our altar, our sacrifice, and our priest. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, often in many of these sacrifices through uh, the year-long system in the Old Testament, the, the, the priests were, it was prescribed for them, they were to eat from those sacrifices. It was one of those ways that God took care of the priests because they had no portion of the land, and so God took care of them. But here in the New Testament, we're told this altar the priests have no right to eat from, and it's pointing to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2.13, But now in Christ... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus, the bronze altar in the tabernacle, was pointing forward to when Jesus would come and Jesus became our altar. If, if there ought to be anything that should cause us joy when we come into the, the courts of, of this place is not all that goes on here that, and all that we should be thankful for, our first and foremost cause of joy should be Jesus and what he has done to pay our penalty, 
to take away our sin because it's there. It's at the cross, the place where Jesus was sacrificed, that you and I receive forgiveness and no other place but there. Not only was Jesus, uh, the, the bronze altar uh, fulfilled there by Jesus, but our perfect high priest is Jesus. The earthly high priest had to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice. It just never stopped. And there are historians that have written about just how much blood was spilled. And, and I don't want to get too graphic because I know we have uh, little ears in the room and all that sort of thing. But it was just it was an ongoing thing. Every year, the Day of Atonement comes around, and, and this is a national celebration of the fact that this is the day when the high priest goes in and makes atonement for our sins. But then they would know that it would come around again the next year. And it never ceased because, number one, the people never stopped sinning. And number two, the priest was himself a sinner. And so he wasn't a perfect priest that could carry this in and represent the people. He himself was a sinner. We see this throughout biblical uh, testimony in Exodus 32, which we'll look at next week. Uh, Aaron himself leads the people into false worship by building this golden calf. Later on, I told you, Nadab and Abihu offer up strange fire. Uh, Eli, later on in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, doesn't discipline his sons. And both of them are so wicked that God strikes them both dead in the same day. So the priests themselves were not perfect. And so therefore the sacrifices of the high priest were neither perfect nor permanent. So our high priest, though, we needed someone who was like us, but also distinct from us. And we see this in in the fact of the, the priests of their day were to be those from among them. They were to be the sons of Aaron. They would have known these, these, these boys growing up. They would know this family within the tribe, within the, the nation of Israel. They were from among the people, but the high priest's garments made him distinct, that he stood out, that somehow there was something different about him as well. And it's a picture here giving us this picture that Jesus is the one who is from among us, taking on flesh and becoming a man, yet he is distinct from us because he has not sinned like we have. We needed a high priest who was perfectly holy, glorious, and beautiful. In Hebrews chapter 7, 26 through 28, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the promise God made to send a Messiah which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that since we needed a high priest who is holy and beautiful and glorious, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us he is the, speaking of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He didn't get back up to offer another sacrifice because there was no need. He fulfilled the priestly role. 
We needed a high priest who could carry our sins on his shoulders the way the high priest would carry the stones representing the 12 tribes and carry that in on the Day of Atonement. We needed someone who could also carry us in since most of us in this room are from outside of the nation of Israel. We were all Gentiles. We were all on the outside. and We had no right to come before this God. And we needed someone who could carry us on his shoulders and represented us before God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't wear an ephod with stones on there. But instead, Isaiah 49 verse 16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus looked at us when we were on the outside, not deserving, and said, I will carry you before the, God, before the Father. I will take your sin on me and atone for your, your sin. Our altar of incense, our altar of incense is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Without, without Jesus, you and I would have no right to pray to God. Nothing to lift our prayers to the heavens. I mean, you think about that. With, without Jesus and his sacrifice, we're talking to the ceiling if, at best. The veil's still there. We, we can't get into the presence of God without Jesus. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus was crucified, that the veil was torn. And it gives us direct access into the presence of God. The Bible tells us over and over again that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but in, he has been tempted in all ways like we have. And he's without sin. And therefore, it encourages us to come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need so that we might find the grace to help. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You and I have direct access through Jesus, but not only that, Jesus is constantly, always lifting our prayers before the Father. That's why we sing that song here that we do. Jesus stands praying for us. Our altar of incense is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Our bronze basin is the gospel. And hear me on this. You and I are forgiven the moment that we are saved. But that doesn't mean that we suddenly are freed from all presence of sin. Right? We're free from the condemnation of sin immediately in the gospel. But you and I still walk through this world and you and I still still pick up dirt. and, And it's not like... It's not like we just are okay with that. We're saved at the moment. We're we're justified at the moment of our salvation. But that doesn't mean we suddenly have it all together. When you think back, those of you who are parents, and you brought home your baby from the hospital, the first time you gave your your little one a, a bath, you made sure the water wasn't too hot, just right. Maybe you were in the tub or maybe you were in one of those little things you'd sit in the kitchen sink or whatever it was. Man, it's just right. So you put your little baby in there and, and for little boys, sometimes that's a trigger. The only parents know what I'm talking about. You pull that baby out after you've Johnson's and Johnson'd him up, you know, and 
smells so good. You wrap him up, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Put that diaper on him. and you, That's the last bath you ever given him? Or did they get dirty again? The reality is, just as physically in this world, we still pick up dirt from this world, spiritually we're the same way. We live in this world and we walk among this world and we, we still pick up the dirt. We still, we still at times feel dirty and feel separated from God and maybe we feel so dirty at times that we feel as if maybe we never had a bath to, to begin with. And maybe I was never really even saved. And some wrestle with that constantly. I don't know that I'm saved because if I was saved, then why do I feel so dirty all the time? Or maybe why am I okay with feeling like I'm dirty? We must learn to appropriate the gospel every day. What I mean by that is, just as a parent doesn't stop giving their children baths after that first one, we've got to learn every day as we walk through this world to say, God, today I sinned. And Lord, maybe I don't feel the way I should about the fact that I sinned. God, help me to hate it. And Lord, would you forgive me of it? Lord, I want to be pleasing to you, and I want to rest in my salvation. I want to know that I'm saved. God, would you help me? We, we preach this to ourselves every day, day after day after day. We get back in that tub day after day after day because the reality is too often we find ourselves making mud pies in the backyard, and we need the bath of the gospel again. Not so that we might be forever freed from the condemnation because I've picked it back up again. The guilt of my sin, I deserve the wrath of God. Not that. Because that was taken care of at the moment that we were converted to Christ. But so that I can be cleansed to come before a holy God. I wash 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 points out our need for ongoing confession. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The reality there is, John is saying, You're going to continue on picking up the dirt of this world. And if you pretend, if you put on a, a face like you got it all together, you're calling God a liar. You're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with your brothers and your sisters who somehow look at your life and think, well, they've got it all together. They seem to be free from struggling with sin. And what's wrong with me? And John says, over and over again, get back into that tub of washing with the gospel. God, I know I'm saved because your word tells me I'm saved by faith in Christ alone. But God, I'm dirty because of my own sin. Lord, would you wash me, forgive me of my sin. Make me clean today. Help me to hate it and help me to love you more.
over and over and over again. The mark of genuine Christianity is not being suddenly free of all sin, but of an ongoing washing with the gospel. So here's the application that I would have for you, and we're done. Number one is this. We've looked at the tabernacle. We've seen what it is to picture and represent. And if you missed those first two sermons, go back and listen to them on the podcast. I don't have time to to give you everything again. But my first question is this. Have you come to God through the perfect tabernacle that is Christ? I showed you how in every piece of furniture that's there that it pointed to Christ and Christ fulfilled it. And he was the great fulfillment of God's great story that he's telling. Have you come to faith, come to God through the perfect tabernacle that is Christ? Is he your priest? Have you received his sacrifice on the altar? I mean, have you come by faith through him? There is no other way. But secondly, I want to go back, and this is very practical for those who are in the room who are, who are already Christians. If, let me go back to that number one. But if, if you have not come by faith to God through the tabernacle that is Christ, then today let me invite you to turn from your own striving and place your faith in Christ alone. The Bible says that if you will call on him, confess yourself to be a sinner before him, ask him to forgive you of your sins, trust that he alone has paid your penalty so that you don't have any condemnation against you because it was judged on him and that he would be your life, then today you can come to God through the tabernacle that is Christ. Secondly, very practical to the Christians in the room, God still displays his glory in order to draw people into his glorious holy presence. The very fact that God built a tabernacle to begin with, part of that was because he wanted his glory to be displayed. He wanted to draw people into his presence. He wanted to dwell among his people. And God still has this same desire. And guess what? God still works in very much the same way. He doesn't call us to build a tent. But instead, he does work through the people of God to be that tent. Let me show you what I mean. He invites the recipients of his grace to participate in the display of his grace. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 2, the very beginning of all this, God's going to build a tabernacle and he says, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Could, could God have built the tabernacle on his own? Absolutely. He spoke the world into existence in six days. He spends more than 40 days giving instructions to build this tabernacle to Moses. God could have built this tabernacle on his own. He could, he could have just came down and just dwelt among them without involving them at all. But God in the beginning here says, every man whose heart moves him, take up an offering for me. You know what it points to? It points to God says, in this plan, in this story of me redeeming a world to myself, I want to invite you to participate with me. Isn't that good? I mean, you talk about a sense of purpose. I mean, It blows my mind. Every year I get so excited for college football season. 
I get so excited to get worked up. This is the year, baby. We're going all the way. We're going to win it all. My team's lost three times. Once to South Carolina. I get so wrapped up and I think, man, we get so, we tie our purposes to these things. Man, what greater purpose could you have other than the God of the universe saying, join me in what I'm doing? That's good. He equips his people with skills and talents to be used for his glory. I won't read this passage, but you can read about these in Exodus 31 and, and following. But he says, I'm going to give you these men who I've, I've, I've equipped them with skills. Man, they're artists. They know what they're doing. And I've put them in your midst so that they might use the skills and the talents that I have given them to work for me. God says, be generous with what I've put in your hands and give it back to me. God says, I've equipped you. I've given you gifts and skills and talents. Be generous and give those back to me. And my question to you today, church, is, has he changed? Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one in the New Testament, in the church, not in the tabernacle, we're not in the wilderness, in the church, this side of the cross, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that sounds strangely like what he said back in Exodus 25, verse 2. Every man whose heart moves him, let him give. We don't set, we don't set standards here or quotas. The membership class, we're not in there saying, okay, tell me what you make. All right, based on the percentages here, here's what you owe us every year. If that were the case, membership class would go down, right? We don't do that because God doesn't tell us to do that. God says, let me move by my spirit through the gospel on the hearts of men and women and move them to be generous. I love that. God says, I love a cheerful giver. He's not looking for people who are having their arms twisted to give. He's looking for people who say, oh God, I've received so much in the gospel. Lord, you are so good in all that you do. God, how could I find anything better to give to other than to what you are doing to redeem a people to yourself? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In other words, to the church, this side of the cross, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He has placed within every church, within every local church, he has placed those who he has equipped. Skills and talents. And you may be sitting there today thinking, well, that's not me. I mean, I know so-and-so over there. They're great, but I, I don't have anything to offer. Listen, I'm sitting in Sunday school today, and Scotty's wrapping up, and I look up there at our little prayer board, little whiteboard, and I see down at the bottom of the prayer board, somebody in our congregation has taken two little magnets. One's yellow, and it's, it's oblong-shaped, and one's yellow, and it's a circle. And they've placed those things just right to where all of a sudden it looks like a the body of a duck. 
And then they took this orange marker and they drew the, the, the bill of the duck on there. And they drew little duck feet on there. And I thought, I wonder who drew that. I wonder who did that. And I thought, you know, that's somebody in this faith family that just is creative. I would have never looked at that magnet and thought, it looks like a duck. <laughs> you know? Somebody did. God has placed here people who are skilled and creative. And those skills and those talents take different forms. And God is saying to all of us, I'm not building a tabernacle anymore because I've already built the lasting tabernacle by sending my son. But I still want to display my glory and I still want to invite people into my presence so that they might know me and find their greatest treasure in me and me alone. And I'm going to do it by asking my people who have already experienced that grace to be generous with what they have and to use what I've equipped them with to draw people to me. Now I want to close in a very practical way and we're going to pray for what I said earlier, but it's November 6th and year to date, and this is, uh, and, and I don't do this a lot, and so if you're visiting with us, I, I'm not a pastor who preaches about money all the time, okay? But year to date, our giving, and I'm so, I'm so thankful for you, I'm thankful for what you have done, and so many of you have given sacrificially, but year to date, we are about $17,000 below our expenses, not, not below what we budgeted and what we at the first of the year said as a church. We say, yes, this is what we think is, we'll spend for the year and we're approving this and we're, we're committing to this. I'm talking about below our, what we have spent. We have spent $17,000 more than what we've taken in. Now that's below what the budget actually is. And so what I'm, what I'm asking you to do, there are eight Sundays left in the year. I'm going to ask you to pray how God might use you to give. How God might move on your heart. I'm not standing up here saying, okay, everybody, you've got to schedule a meeting with me this week because we're going to go over your finances and I'm going, to, I'm going to take. I don't have the right to do that. I don't have the temperament to do that. But I do want you to pray and ask God to move on your heart how you might be a cheerful giver to see us make up that, that shortfall. And then I want to ask you this question. Are you using your God-given skills and talents for God's glory? Or are you hoarding them for yourselves? Maybe you, you think that you don't have anything to offer compared to everyone else. Let me, can I just say something to you in all love? That's either a, a complaint against God. Well, God, you didn't make me like so-and-so, so I don't have anything to offer God. If you'd have made me like them, God, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd volunteer. You're either complaining against God or that is self-pity masquerading itself as pride. I would just challenge you to step up and say, I don't know how, but God's made me. And the Bible tells me that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He's redeemed me and he's placed me in a church. How am I to use me? And just ask him to show you. Two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I guess, when I called Christy the first time and asked her if she would share her story, her response was, I'm not a very good speaker, but I've been praying that God would use me some way. So yes, 
I'll share my story. That's all I'm asking you to do is pray. And when he shows you, be obedient. Are you doing your part in the work of displaying God's glory in our community and beyond? I believe that God has an incredible plan for our community and our nation and our world. And we are one small little church in the midst. But so was the tabernacle. May we be right here, a tabernacle to the glory of God. Amen? I want to lead us in a word of prayer and uh, want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I told you I was going to end a little bit in a unique way. Um, as always, if you need to talk uh, at the end, please come see me. Um, it's not that we're not having this invitation here at the end. We, the invitation is always there. Come see me. If the Lord's moving on you, you need to talk to someone about receiving the Lord, please come, come speak to me. Um, there will still be people in a prayer room out through these doors. They would love to pray with you. But I want to lead us in a time of prayer, corporate prayer together for these three things that I shared at the beginning. Uh, for the Kills family, uh, for our community in, in the wake of this disturbing and shocking news, uh, and then also for the election on Tuesday. And so if you would, um, and Ethan, if you want to come and just kind of play, and, and um, Ethan will uh, kind of lead us out from there. But I just want to pray. If you would like to come, and, uh, and kneel across the, the front, you're welcome to do that. If, you're, if you'd like to stay where you are and just kind of uh, pray from there or turn your, your chair, sort of uh, kneel in front of it, whatever you want to do. Um, but I'm going to ask you not to just sit passively while I pray, but that you would join me right where you are and pray as well, that we would be a people who are known to cry out to God. We're not doing this because we believe in the power of prayer. We're doing this because we believe in the power of the one we pray to. And we believe in his character. That he is benevolent and good and merciful and loving and gracious. And he is altogether wise. So would you join me as we pray together? This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.